Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In case you didn't hear, Meltem Demiris of CoinShares and Jalan Jobin Putra of Future Perfect Ventures and I are all teaching a crypto workshop at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York from September 20th to the 22nd. Plus, there will be yoga, healthy food, and Omega's beautiful 250-acre campus. If the idea of spending a few days in nature, enjoying activities, and talking crypto sounds fun to you, check out the show notes for the link to sign up. Also, Unchained is now on YouTube. You can find the most recent episodes there every week on the Unchained Podcast channel. And if you're not yet subscribed to my weekly newsletter, go now to unchainedpodcast.com to sign up. CypherTrace makes it easy for exchanges and crypto businesses to comply with cryptocurrency anti-money laundering laws. Avoid illegal sources of funds and maintain healthy banking relationships. CypherTrace is helping you grow the crypto economy by keeping it safe and secure. Today's guest is Zach Fallon, principal at Blakemore Fallon. Welcome, guest. <laughs> Sorry, welcome, Zach. <laughs> Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Last week, Blockstack announced that it is doing an initial coin offering via Reg A+. When I heard the news, I immediately thought of you, since, as far as I understand, you pretty much wrote Reggae and were involved in drafting many of the crowdfunding rules. And now you advise teams in the crypto space. Tell the listeners more of your background. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Laura. It's great to be here and speaking with the audience. As you suggested, I, I was at the staff of the SEC for uh, a number of years. I was there for about nine years and I started in their office of the general counsel and then transitioned a few years later to their division of corporation finance in the Office of Small Business Policy. Um, I did that at a time when the crowdfunding rules, uh, the Jobs Act provisions, which were uh, adopted to really allow the commission to adopt rules on, on their end, which facilitated crowdfunding, were um, came about. And that, that was in 2012. Uh, so I was there from the beginning of the Jobs Act implementation by the staff at the SEC and worked uh, quite heavily on some of the, the regulations, as you know, Regulation A, uh, peripherally on, on Reg CF, um, 506C offering rules as well. Um, I was there uh, through the adoption of the, of the Reg A rules and stayed for years thereafter to um, help with the implementation of the rules, uh, the interpretation of the rules, and to work with our director for a period of time as, as his uh, senior counsel. So, yeah, no, great to be here. And so, but then you left to establish your own firm, which I believe caters to crypto companies. Yes. As far as what I've done since I left the SEC uh, last year in April, um, some like-minded folks uh, I was able to uh, get in touch with. And we, we started uh, Quetzal Consulting, which is a consulting firm that deals with regulatory technology, um, adoption of regulatory technology type solutions, as well as Blake Morfallon, uh, its affiliated law firm. 
and we're we're based out of uh, Dumbo in Brooklyn, although I I work uh, remotely here in the DC area. All right, so now let's talk about Blockstack. Explain what it means that Blockstack is conducting a token offering under Reg A+. What can it do? What can't it do? How much can it raise from whom, etc.? Sure. Yeah, and I I think it's that's a great place to start. I think uh for purposes of background, I can say quickly that what regulation A is and what it allows companies to do, you know, irrespective of Blockstack, and then we can talk about how Blockstack may interact with that. But um, so Regulation A is an exemption from registration for public securities offerings that consists of two offering tiers. Tier one is for offerings of up to $20 million in a 12-month period, and tier two is for offerings of up to $50 million in a 12-month period. And for offerings of up to $20 million, companies can elect to proceed under the requirements of either tier one or tier two. Uh, it looks like Blockstack is conducting a tier two offering uh, of up to $50 million in any given 12-month period. So what Regulation A is, is, is a disclosure-based exemption from registration. It allows issuers more flexibility with respect to testing the waters or soliciting interest in the offering in advance of their ability to actually make sales. That's sort of a, a, a novel thing under the securities laws traditionally, which you had to wait to uh, actually set, um, have your offering qualified or deemed a registration statement deemed effective in order to begin making sales and offers. Um, that, that is not the case with Reg A. You can, you can sort of make these offers ahead of time. Uh, there were limited ability to do it in the registered context, but, but generally the testing the waters provisions in Reg A are, are quite, quite robust and, and allow for a lot of flexibility of communications with potential um, investors or in block stakes uh, case, potential network participants. It also allows for sales to retail investors, which is great because you don't have to limit sales to accredited investors only. It provides for the preemption of state securities laws. So Blockstack is does not have to, uh, to register at every state in which with every state in which it plans to conduct the offering. It can register at the federal level only and uh, submit notice filings to the states in which it plans to conduct the offering. And importantly, too, the securities sold in a Reg A offering are unrestricted. That is, they're not subject to the typical one-year holding period that uh, comes with a private offering of securities. With with Reg A, though, um, as you'll see, as you've seen in in the one A the offering statement filing itself, that they, it does require a substantive narrative and financial disclosures to be included in in a document filed with the SEC. With um, in Blockstack's case, it that requires the inclusion of audited financial statements because they're conducting a tier two offering. And as a result, once they're qualified, they'll be required to file ongoing annual and semi-annual reports. But a lot, a lot of that information will be based off of what you see, what you see already in, in their public filing once it's in fact qualified. You know, what, what can they do? They can, as I said, they can, they can start telling people that they're intending for this to happen now. And that's also in related to the, the testing the waters provisions, which allows people, them to, to notify potential participants and, and see if people are going to be interested in this. That helps to fig- for them to figure out, you know, from a cost perspective, whether or not it's worth pursuing this at all. So I think that's that's a really helpful thing. And uh, yeah, I think as of last week, they basically publicly filed, um, which which is a good sign that they they have a, a good sense of the issues that the, the staff cares about and, and that they plan on moving forward with the filing and, and not staying in the sort of the dark non-public submission stage of the offering. So does that mean essentially that you think the likelihood that this will be approved is pretty high? Like, does it mean that they've pretty much worked very closely with the SEC to even get to this point? 
I think it's safe to say they've worked closely with the SEC to get to this state. Now, and the reason you, the reason I know that is because it, it's not just this initial 1A filing. It's also, you, if you look at the, the Edgar filing page, which is the company's profile page on the SEC's website, you can see previous filings. That is a, a draft offering statement, or you know, it's, if you look at it, it's a DOS, and then you can see a draft offering statement that was amended, a DOSA, and both of those happened in the fall, I believe, and, and into the winter. And so they, they've already had back and forth with the staff on substantive issues. They've they've um, likely been able to address many of the issues, but uh, um, whether or not they've addressed them all uh, is an open question. It's it's not entirely clear from the filing what issues remain outstanding. Um, I suspect there are there are um, there are issues outstanding, but I don't know how substantive they are at this stage. Uh, but what I would say is that typically, and this is just typically, uh, companies publicly file when they have a good sense of, of those concerns and um, have some confidence in their ability to address them. So, in, in that sense, I think it bodes bodes well. And one other thing, I wanted to be sure I understood. So, filing under Reg A plus means that Walk Stack will get an exemption for registering for a public filing. But then I also noticed like in, in uh, what they wrote, they said that they anticipate treating the stacks tokens as securities. So just so I understand the exemption is like from filing requirements or like it's, it's not an exemption for, for their tokens to not be securities. Right. Right. Can you, can you just explain? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So the block stack is not taking the position that, that their tokens are not securities. They're taking they're taking the position that they are investment contract securities. And so what the, the way the regulatory framework works is, is really the, the statutory default position in the uh, Securities Act of 1933 is to require registration of companies. And so that is, that's, um, those are the provisions in Section 5 of the 33 Act. And those deal with companies that are ready to go, uh, to register their offering in a, in a very public way and to, um, wait to make sales until their offering has been deemed effective by the staff. Now, that's not practical for many companies, uh, particularly smaller companies and startup companies. And so what the the SEC has done over the years and what the the statute provides for is a series of exemptions from registration, which don't affect the the securities, their status as securities, but rather provides more flexible ways in which the issuer can offer offer and sell those securities to persons in the in the market, and so um, you have Regulation D, which is for accredited, uh, largely for accredited investors, um, which is a private offering, and that is an exemption from registration. In the same way that Regulation A is an exemption from registration, it doesn't it doesn't mean that the the what the person is selling, what the company is selling, is not a security. It just means that they have this more flexible path, which doesn't result in the registration requirements and the, and the implications that come with them downstream, um, like with respect to ongoing reporting and those sort of issues. And then something else that fascinated me is, so they are allowed to raise the funds in Bitcoin and Ether in addition to dollars. Do you think that that is something that would have been difficult for them to make happen? Or or is there like nothing in the Jobs Act regulation that would you know have made that difficult? No, I don't. I don't think there's anything. There's nothing in the Jobs Act certainly that would have contemplated um, Bitcoin or Ether. <laughs> um, but I do think that uh, this, the SEC has been pretty clear that purchasing securities, uh, or sorry, purchasing, um, well, yeah, purchasing securities with using Bitcoin or Ether as the the, the currency by with which you pay for it is is fine. Um, there, 
there are, and you know, plenty of people do that in these offerings and it doesn't really affect the analysis. The one thing that the sort of the wrinkles that come up in reg a largely have to do with when you're describing in a very public way, the process by which you accept investment dollars or coins, um, you have to keep in mind that there are different ways in which they can be valued. There are different times in which they, you know, in a very volatile market where, the currency may be worth one thing when you give it to the company, but something else when it actually hits their coffers. And sort of how you characterize that delta and how you address the the risk that somebody maybe gave you what they thought was $10, but it ends up only being worth seven. The potential implications around that, I think, are the only things that really come up in, in Reg A with respect to accepting investments in, in something other than, than USD. All right. We're going to discuss the time lock on the funds in a moment. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Did you know that if money laundering were an economy, its GDP would be the size of Canada's? Large volumes of tainted crypto assets move through financial networks, often below the radar of banks. Cybercriminals use unregulated crypto exchanges to avoid detection. No wonder governments around the world are rolling out tough, new anti-money laundering laws for cryptocurrencies. Complying with those laws isn't easy. Banks and exchanges need the best cryptocurrency intelligence available to avoid penalties. Now you can use the same powerful AML and compliance monitoring tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. To learn more, visit cyphertrace.com unchained. Back to my conversation with Zach Fallon of Blakemore Fallon. So the time lock on these funds for the the stacks tokens, is that something that's typical for jobs at crowdfunding roles or are they electing to do that? I think they're electing to do that. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me, this is an, one of the interesting wrinkles in the filing itself is that, um, as I was describing reg, regulation a earlier, one of the, the primary, one of the primary benefits, um, as against say conducting an offering in the, in, as a private placement is the, is that once you, once is that the securities you sell once the offering has been qualified are, are not restricted securities, which means they're not subject to the traditional holding period of one year for private companies. And so that, that is a, that's an important benefit of using reg, regulation A. Uh, and the, the company does mention you know, quite clearly, as they should, that these are not restricted securities for purposes of uh, federal securities laws. Um, nevertheless, the, the company is implementing a time lock, and it's not entirely clear to me uh, why that is. It must be there must be some business reason um, for for doing so, but there isn't a regulatory reason uh, as such. Yeah, and actually, it's even longer than the one year. Uh, it's they're saying that it'll be a year and eleven months. But one other thing, actually, I don't know if you noticed this. It was saying that while the tokens are locked up, they cannot be used for any purpose, even within the network which I thought was strange because these are supposed to be utility tokens. So do you think that there's like a regulatory reason for that? I think there is, there's, a regula- there's potentially a regulatory reason for not ha- having them uh, freely tradable on registered exchanges and alternative trading systems that are operated by registered broker-dealers because those don't really exist at the moment. So having them be freely tradable off-network is not um, controversial in my view at this stage because there really isn't anywhere to do that. And, and, the, and the company sort of acknowledges that, um, the, f- that they won't be used, be able to be used on the network is interesting. I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a strong sense of why that may be. And I should also just preface generally that, 
know, this, this is their first public filing, right? So they, they, we don't know when it will be qualified or if it will be qualified. As I said, there's a good chance that they've addressed a lot of the issues, but the staff at the SEC still has the right to raise additional comments. The company still has the right to change uh, disclosures that are in here. And so to the extent that we're looking at the four corners of what has been filed, it's not like, uh, you know, it's a moving target on some level. So a lot of the stuff in here uh, may change. And I'm not saying that I'm not focusing on the time lock when I say that, but just sort of generally keeping in mind here that what we're looking at is really a draft and it won't be final until it is actually qualified and they can begin to operate the network. And when you say we don't know how long, so there's no kind of typical timeline for the SEC to give a decision on this type of filing? There's no, um, there's no mandatory timeline, I'd say. The, the staff typically in a non-crypto offering would, would turn around comments um, pretty quickly uh, within, I would say, probably a, a month's time uh, from the time you file something or non-publicly submit something until you get uh, formal feedback from the staff. You may get interim informal feedback from, from the particular team reviewing it. But I think a, a month is a good rule of thumb. And, and what you see in the crypto market is, with crypto reggae filings is um, much longer turns. So uh, I think if you, if you do the math on what's you know, publicly available here in the, in the file, it looks like the staff is taking, uh, you know, handling turns in slightly over, you know, around two months, I would say, which is um, not normal for the regu- regular Regulation A offering, but does highlight the aspect that, that what we're dealing with he- here is something novel in their, from their perspective and that they uh, are, are, uh, are, you know, really working to understand the issues that are the implications of the network. Um, these are complicated things, and, and every network, as you know, is sort of has its own bespoke features. And, and trying to um, categorize anything writ large in the space can be can be difficult. Even though once you boil things down, uh, sometimes they look very much the same. Getting there is a process, and I think that's often why things take some time. One other thing I notice is that investors can only purchase up to three thousand dollars worth of Stacks tokens. Does that have to do with the crowdfunding rules, or is that something they're choosing? It could be. Um, I haven't seen, I didn't see that in the offering, but I do know that in Regulation A generally, with respect to retail non-accredited investors, there are, um, if you want to take advantage of a tier two offering and, and uh, state and gets uh, the preemption of state laws, the provision I mentioned before, um, one of the, the requirements is that you limit the sale to uh, non-accredited investors to the greater of 10% of their net worth or income for natural persons. And so to the extent that they're you know, it's, it's possible they may be using that as a metric of of, of 10% net worth or income, but I, I, I don't know that that's the case because you never know who's falling, who could potentially fall above or below that based on, on network participants. So it might not be um, based on a regulatory, uh, a reg A requirement. Although, as I said, the closest thing in the regulation is this idea of limiting um, sales to non-accredited investors uh, with an investment limitation. Yeah, perhaps it has to do with them wanting to distribute the tokens to as many people as possible for utility purposes, or like you know, seeding the network. Um, uh, uh, yeah, you know thing- what? That, sorry, I mean that that is a good point, and that idea that uh, you know people are only purchasing the amounts in which they intend to use is a sort of important criteria that the staff looks at um, with respect to whether or not something is a security. So, to the extent that they can avoid concentration, uh, concentrated holdings of the of the tokens then I think that, that benefits them in that regard. One other thing I couldn't help but notice is that New York investors are not allowed to participate in this offering. 
Oh, and actually Blockstack is based here in New York. Do you think that has to do with the bit license? It may very well. And if you look actually at the Blockstack, you know, their address, Blockstack Token LLC anyway, is is in New Jersey. So um, <laughs> <laughs> just to add uh, some color to what is your sense is probably my sense as well. New Jersey benefiting from... Well, I, I won't go into that. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so, has your firm seen seen much interest from teams wanting to do a Reg A plus token offering? Yes, for sure. There's there, you know, the the it waxes and wanes in interest, and I think um, there uh, there definitely are there definitely are companies interested in, in pursuing Regulation A, and and rightly so. Um, it is in many ways it may be the best option. Uh, best regulatory compliant option that that certain companies have based on their on their uh, their intended user models and their, and their sort of their business models um, so we are seeing definitely seeing interest in in the space I think you know some people are concerned about costs um, which I think is a is a is a legitimate concern they're concerned about time to qualification so how long are they going to be stuck in the the SEC's review process there are certainly uncertainties there um, but for companies with the right the right, uh, you know, profile. I think it it is it is a it is a great option. Um, it's not the only option, and I think um, at the end of the day, most people will typically tend towards the private uh, private placements, the the Reg D and Reg S offerings, and will uh, pursue a path that is in in their view uh, contains less friction and, and cause potential uncertainty that, and public scrutiny. But uh, having said that, I think you'll probably see more 1As come online in, in the coming months. I, I wouldn't be surprised by that. Yeah. And just to note, Blockstack actually also is raising funds via Regas, which, as far as I understand, enables them to raise funds outside the U.S. Is that correct? Yes. Regas is, a, is not an exemption as such. It's a safe harbor, which basically says if you comply with it, um, then your offering will be deemed to, to not sort of uh, interact with U.S. jurisdictional means and you'll be offshore. And you can do those offerings um, concurrently with a Regulation A offering and not have to worry about the integration of the two uh, for purposes of the exemption. So that, you know, if, if, you, um, if you make sales to people overseas pursuant to Reg S and sales to persons in the U.S. pursuant to Reg A, then, then they won't sort of blend those th- two things together and say, hey, you, you haven't, um, you know, you violated, when you lump them together, there was no violation for the whole the whole thing. And one other thing is you said that some of the teams that seemed perhaps interested in doing a Reg A plus token offering were concerned about the cost and the time it takes. So what is uh, the typical cost for, for doing that? And what is the amount of time it would typically take? Yeah. So, uh, you know, timing is, is, is really, uh, you know, it's impossible to forecast with, you know, definitively and particularly in this space, um, traditionally, with a non-crypto offering, as I said, you can kind of uh, get a good sense of um, you know a month to get comments back. Maybe it takes you a couple of weeks to to respond to those comments, and then sort of again, and maybe going through that cycle um, two or three times, uh, maybe a fourth time. So you're looking between three to six months, right? I mean, something in that window. A lot of it depends on your ability as a company to respond quickly to comments. So if, if you're in a rush. And you sit on the comments for a while. Well, the SEC is not going to take a unilateral action. They're just going to wait for you to respond with uh, a revised document that answers addresses their questions. So a lot of it is in is in the company's uh, boat. And with with the staff, you can kind of forecast a thirty day turn 
uh, each round, and sometimes they get significantly quicker as the issues disappear. With crypto, as I said, the timing um, seemingly doubles. I don't want to say in every instance, but that that time can can take potentially longer, right? And so I think we're seeing that. I think that's part of the frustration. Um, as far as costs, costs vary widely, and so you know, there's nothing in the regulation which suggests you need an attorney to draft uh, the offering statement. But if you look at Blockstack's uh, offering, you can see why there are t- attorneys involved, um, or you can see the product of attorney involvement. And I think you know this is sort of one of the one of the the beautiful things about disclosure generally uh, that's been filed publicly is that um, the the Blockstack token. Uh, offering statement is really robust. Uh, it's it's a large document, 140 or some odd pages um, at least. And if you compare that to what a lot of people, what a lot of investors have gotten in their you know 15 to 20 page white papers, you can see that, that you can see the sort of the benefit of it. Now, there's of course there's a cost associated with that, which is that it, it takes time to produce this. It takes time to have the back and forth with the staff. But the the product is is is. Um, is meaningful. The, the delta is meaningful, and it's not just about the disclosure, but it's also about the company's accountability for that disclosure. And so, to their credit, Blockstack has, um, you know, is doing this, and they're they're saying these things, and they're willing to stand stand beside them in the aftermarket um, as saying, "This is, you know, we told you everything we, you needed to know. We complied with the exemption, and uh, and you know, they should get credit for that for sure." Um, but it's not. I think for their purposes, it's probably not inexpensive to come up with a document like this. Yeah, I would definitely say that it was pretty refreshing to see all the risks laid out in plain English. You know, for instance, they mentioned everything from like, there could be a bug in the software, Blockstack could lose its crypto assets, um, there could maybe the stacks, uh, there the, there will never be a trading market for stacks, or the stacks might never be worth anything. Um, yep. There could be a hard fork. I mean, it's, it just goes on and on and on. And you know, I had this conversation with SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce recently on Unchained, which thank you, Zach, for facilitating that. And she, you know, talked about how she thought disclosures were important. And, you know, you could definitely look at this filing and see what she's talking about. Um, so last question for you. What do you think is the significance of this Blockstack uh, reggae, token, reggae token offering? Like, do you think that this kind of indicates this is where the future will be going or, you know, as somebody who's watched both the crowdfunding rules and then the ICO craze, like what's your take on what this means? Well, what I think it, it means is that the, the market has been, well, what I think it show we will show is, is how starved the market has been for an example like this. Whereas there's no shortage of, of private placements presumed to reg D or reg S that have been happening in this space. Um, I guarantee you that, 99.9%, if not 100% of them, don't have disclosure like this that they're providing their investors. They're not necessarily required to, so state that for the record. But you'll see, you can see sort of the benefit of, of this path. Now, it doesn't solve some of the, the more pressing concerns that both those who have offered in the private placement market or in this reggae market will encounter. And that has to, largely to do with the aftermarket's um, trading. And that's something that Regulation A doesn't address although they address it in the filing as risks, like as you said, it may never trade anywhere. But those, those sort of friction points are not solved through Regulation A. It is not a panacea in that, in that regard. Um, so the, what the issuers will encounter is, is going to be the same, but it does show that there is another viable path and one which um, allows you to freely communicate with people 
who may be participants. You can sort of, you can build your following in a compliant way uh, publicly while you're waiting to be qualified. And I think that's a good thing. All right. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Oh my gosh. Yes. Thanks so much. This has been great. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you are not yet signed up for my email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to get my thoughts on the top crypto stories of the week. And be sure to check out our new channel on YouTube. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylan Gullapali, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.